So a question I have for us is, if you had been in prison or under an oppressive government and been set free, can you imagine actually wanting to go back into prison or under an oppressive government? You know, it's interesting, some of the uh, feedback I've heard off and on over the years since the former Soviet Union collapsed is some people actually wanting to go back under that kind of government, that kind of uh, hard-line communist government, socialist government. And we have a precedent for that biblically in the nation of Israel. If you know their story, they got freed from Egypt after being hundreds of years in slavery, and it wasn't long before they, they were freed that they wanted to go back to Egypt. So there's something about our, in our broken condition that we uh, must fight the gravitational pull away from the gospel into worldly bondage, into worldly slavery. And we need, part of the solution is, certainly we need Christ alone. He's the one who frees us from worldly bondage, worldly slavery, to worldly religion or worldly idols. We'll talk about what that is. But um, part of the solution to that as well is gospel-centered relationships. So today we're going to see in this section of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20, how those things come together to help us continue to live and walk in the freedom we have in Christ if we have embraced the gospel of Christ by faith. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20 together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. And this comes right after, verse 8 comes after verse 7, so that's pretty profound, I know. In verse 7, uh, Paul had said, you're no longer a slave but a son. You've been freed from the law, and you are a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the natural question is, what do you mean I'm a slave? I'm an American. I'm no longer, I'm not a slave. Nobody tells me what to do. And Paul's answer to that is, oh, really now? Let's take a look at that, see what that really, what true gospel freedom is. So formerly, in verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you, you, you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. May the Holy Spirit help us to grasp what he wants us to get 
how he wants us to think, act, and believe in resulting from his word. So Paul is speaking to the majority of the, the Galatian Christians who are from pagan backgrounds. There's some of them are from Jewish backgrounds. Most of them are from pagan Gentile backgrounds. And he's saying to them, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So he describes their lives before receiving Christ as when they did not know God. The word know doesn't just mean to know about God. It means to be in personal relationship with God. They didn't have a living love relationship with God. Rather, they were slaves to non-gods by nature. So that was their former lives. They did not know God. That meant they did not have a living love relationship with God. That's biblically what we mean when we talk about knowing God or God knowing us. They had all kinds of false gods which they were enslaved to. There were mystery religions, the Roman emperor cult, the gods of ancient Greece such as Zeus and Aphrodite. Uh, many of them were probably on the, the god of the month mailing list. And because nobody laughed, that was obviously a li- very lame joke, my poor attempt. There was astrology and star gods. Of course, many people follow astrology today. They thought the planets were thought to control events on earth and so on. There's all kinds of non-gods that they could follow. So although these are all non-gods, whether ancient or modern, they function as substitutes for the true and living God. As we saw in Psalm 115 this morning, the Pastor Greg read for us, they who make them will become like them. These false gods are life and freedom-sucking dehumanizing, enslaving. Nothing is more true than this. We become like what we worship, and we will worship something. That's how God created us, is to worship him, to glorify him, and that doesn't change because, because of the fall into sin. That continues. Well, whether we acknowledge God or not, we will worship something, and whatever we worship, that is what we become like. So conversion to Christ means breaking completely from idols and false gods of the surrounding culture. Jesus Christ is the one way that God has provided for us to be free from false gods, from from idols. He is the one that sets us free. Jesus Christ is the way that God has provided to know him and to be liberated from the deadening, enslaving power of idols. Paul goes on in verse 9 and he says, Since... Uh, you are known by God. Don't turn back to worthless worldly religion. So that's why Paul naturally asked him this question. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you desire to be once more? But now that you know God, Paul says, you have a living, loving, personal relationship with God, Or more importantly, now that you are known by God. That is really important. Knowing God is the essence of eternal life. We see that in John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But knowing God is not the result of searching for him through religious techniques and spiritual exercises. The only reason that we know God is because he first knows us. Of course, God knows about every person that's ever lived on the face of the earth. But for God to know us means that he takes the initiative 
in drawing us into a relationship with himself, a living, loving relationship with him, in which we have a close, life-giving relationship with God. It's not just knowing about God or acknowledging he exists. It is God knowing us. And that frees us from enslaving idolatry. So if you are a Christian today, it's because you are known by God. And you only know God because God first knows you. That means he has initiated a relationship, a saving, living, loving relationship with you. That is the greatest, greatest reality that we have in our lives, if that's true for us today. So how, if a person has experienced that, Paul's saying, how could you, how would you, why would you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Uh, This word, elementary principles, Paul used in the passage last week in verse 3 also, and he uses it to mean the religious and spiritual beliefs and practices that make sense to the world and get their power from the world. Elementary principles of the world means spiritual principles, the techniques that make sense to the world, religious efforts that make sense to the world, and get its, gets its power from the world. So Paul uh, was saying that the law last week, we saw that Paul talked about that in terms of them following the law. So in verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul said that the law was given to be fulfilled in Christ. It was like a guardian and manager for God's people. So how could you continue trying to please God, to earn favor with God by keeping the law, the Old Testament law? Now he's using that same term to refer to the pagan backgrounds of the Galatians, these believers that lived in what is today modern Turkey. Um, So the same word applies to both, whether it's Jewish law-keeping or pagan worship. He calls those elementary principles of the world. So Paul's saying, Now that you've entered into a living, loving relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, why would you exchange your old pagan form of spiritual slavery for another form of slavery? And Paul points out an example what that is. In verse 10, he says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. Now, there was nothing wrong with celebrating the Jewish feasts. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you do it as, as a, um, a means of gaining favor with God or being a super Christian, uh, the way that the false teachers were implying is that in order to really be in favor with God or be a truly faithful Christian, you had to keep the law, including the Old Testament feast, the Passover and Yom Kippur and all those things. So that's not bad to do. It's just wrong if you're doing it thinking that it gives you some spiritual advantage, a spiritual enhancement. It does nothing for you other than if you can reflect upon God's goodness and how these things were fulfilled in Christ. So, for example, a couple years ago, we had a Passover Seder here with some Jewish background believers. And that was a great experience, sharing it with these uh, Jewish believers who had uh, became followers of Jesus Christ, and we could see how those feasts pointed to Christ and were fulfilled in Christ. However, if we had said, in order to really be the the top-notch Christians, in order to, to honor God truly and be fully faithful Christians, we need to observe the Passover every year, then we would be crossing a line into putting you in bondage to worldly elementary principles. Just that's what Paul said. We would have been no better off than if we had implemented celebrating the astrological signs or Wiccan. Seriously, that's what Paul says. He's equating worldly religion, whether it's the cleaned up, kind of Christianized Jewish version of it, or pagan. It's all the same. If it's absent Jesus Christ and the gospel, 
it brings you into bondage, no matter how good it looks on the outside. So, in other words, non-gospel-centered religion cannot save whether pagan or Jewish or Christian, quote-unquote, in form. In other words, anything we rely upon to make us right with God other than Jesus Christ and his gospel is an idol. We, uh, as one person said, our hearts are idol factories. We, because we are made to worship, if we're not worshiping God through Jesus Christ, we will worship an idol. Absolutely true every time. So anything that we feel we must have more than Jesus Christ to make life worth living is an idol. Anything that we trust in and treasure above Christ, we are enslaved to. As another writer said, without the gospel, we must be under the slavery of an idol. Now, Paul even goes so far to say to them that you want to be slaves again. That, that's the weird, that's a kind of crazy thing in our fallenness, in our broken state. We actually prefer being under, in slavery to an idol. In our sin-warped condition, we prefer slavery to worldly, worldly religion or moralism rather than freedom in Christ. It's partly due to the fact that idols deceive. Idols blind our spiritual eyes to see the truth. And the truth about them is, well, they give us the illusion that we're in control of God or of things that we feel we need or want. So they blind us to our greatest need, and absolutely every one of us here, we, have, we come in with a whole host of different needs in our lives, but the one need we have more than anything else that every single person here has in common is... We need righteousness and we need eternal life that comes from Christ alone. That is the diagnosis of the scripture. Number one need, far above any other need, and we only get that through Jesus Christ. Everything else that we value in place of that is an idol. Only God has ultimate control and he alone gives us freely. We can only receive life and righteousness freely from God through Christ. Anything that we feel that we must work for to get is serving an idol. It brings us into bondage. So it doesn't matter whether our idol slavery is pagan, cleaned up religion, even Christian-like, as we've said. It would be Christian-like morality, family values, liberal, conservative, uh, pop culture, high culture, money, beauty, uh, our desire for approval, addictions, relationships, TV shows that we're more devoted to than Christ. Anything can become an idol we probably got more than we know. So whatever we think gives us security, whatever we think gives us uh, significance, whatever we think gives us satisfaction, more than Jesus enslaves us to weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. So a question is, what are our idols? We've got them. we got them, sure as anything. I want us to think about that. In verse 11, Paul says, If turning to and trusting in Old Testament religious practices were merely a matter of different practices that different groups are free to observe or not observe, Paul would not be concerned. But he says, I'm afraid I am labored over you in vain. So, so strong was the pull away from the purity of the gospel that we are accepted by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So strong is that pull, you'd think we would cling on to it with all our might, but the gravitational pull of our hearts is always away from that, unless we are refreshed in the gospel every day. So anything that uh, the 
So strong was the pull away from the purity of the gospel and toward trusting in non-gospel worldly religion that Paul wonders if his gospel labors over them had been in vain. So we need to radically fight the temptations we face to let our faith in the gospel of Christ to be siphoned off toward other lovers. To even good and right-sounding religious or non-religious ideas or ideologies that shape our hearts, our convictions, and our attitudes more than the gospel. And the truth is, none of us can do this apart from gospel-centered relationships. That's where Paul goes next. And this is where we really see Paul pour his heart out. You might think he's just this hard-nosed theologian, and he's a tough theologian, Bible teacher. But he really has a super strong affection for these Galatians. And we see that as he talks and writes, pours out his heart. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. What does Paul mean? For the sake of the gospel, Paul had entered into the Galatians' world, uh, accommodating himself to their culture as far as he could, without compromising, in order to reach them with the gospel. That's how he became as they are. And he clearly loved them. That's why he is so intensely concerned for them. So when Paul pleads... With them to become as I am, he is saying, I came to you for the sake of the gospel, not to bring you into bondage to worldly religion, but that you could have freedom in Christ. I, Paul, would say, I was once enslaved to self-righteous worldly religion. He was as zealous as a Pharisee and a legalistic bondage. He blindly opposed Christ. He said, there is no turning back for me. So become as I am living in gospel freedom and not turning back to the bondage of non-gospel worldly religion. He's watching them get pulled into the same trap that he was in, coming out of paganism, seeing Christ, and then turning away. That's what Paul is so frustrated and concerned for them. So he's, he's saying, are your relationships with me uh, being compromised because of the gospel? So the question I have for us is, are our relationships gospel-centered? In other words, are your relationships and my relationships advancing the gospel in the lives of others or enhancing our own growth in the gospel? Together, we need to be fellow freedom fighters. We need to encourage one another in walking fully in the freedom we have in Christ, and we can't do it alone. So we'll see more of that as we walk through the rest of this passage. In verse 13, Paul says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached to you the gospel the first. We really don't know what Paul's bodily ailment was, but that doesn't stop people from guessing, right? It's so much fun to guess about the stuff that's not told us in Scripture. We can spend a whole Bible study guessing about stuff that's not told us. However, people think it could be malaria, it could have been epilepsy. Others say it was an eye problem because at verse 11 of chapter 6 of Galatians, of this letter, he says, I wrote with really big letters. So the original um, large text Bible was started with Galatians. Some say, well, maybe he was talking about the same thorn in the flesh he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It could be. We just don't know. They knew what he was talking about. God is able then, whatever his bodily ailment was, God used it in some way to lead Paul to preach the gospel in the Galatian region at first. Maybe it restricted him from leaving or traveling or just from passing through. But for us, what we get is God is able to work through our adversities and sufferings to display his mercy and grace to advance gospel mission and relationships. God will work his powerful grace through your sickness, 
through your persecution, through your poverty, disasters, family tragedies, for his glory and the gospel and for your good. So the question I have for us is, what weaknesses, what things are you struggling with that God either is using or might use to advance the gospel? He can do it. He loves to do that. He loves us in our weakness to to look to him. Uh, As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, God's strength is made perfect. His power is perfected in our weakness. We hate that. I hate it. But it's true. He displays the glory of the gospel in our weakness. And so that's what Paul was saying to them. And in, um, in verse 14, he continues talking about this. He says, My condition was a trial to you. It was pretty tough for you to endure. In some way, Paul's bodily ailment was a trial to the Galatians. Was Paul disfigured? What was it that made it such a trial? They knew. We don't know exactly what it was that made it so hard on them. But he said, um, whatever it was, the Galatians did not reject him for it. They did not despise. The word despise is a word that means literally to spit. The word sounds like what it is. Patui. We get the word patui. So you did not patuo me. You did not disdain me. You didn't spit in my general direction. Um, did he have some kind of twitch? Was he just, what was his problem? You know, we really can't wait to get to heaven and ask Paul these really important questions, right? What was his deal? But he said, you, you did not disdain me. You did not despise me. You did not scorn. Instead, you received me with the enthusiasm and honor that would be fitting if he were an angel or, or Christ himself. Wow. So they really welcomed him and the gospel that he brought in an amazing way. Even though in their culture, a deformity or a sickness or a weakness was seen as a sign of divine judgment. So they could have looked at Paul from the eyes of their culture and said, hey, obviously this guy is not very favored of the gods or God because he's sick and he's infirm. But they didn't look at it that way. So what happened? After that initial reception, now that things have gotten bad between them, he says, What became of your blessedness? In verse 15. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given it to me. Wow, what is that about? That's why some people think that Paul's problem is an eye problem, like they were willing to transplant their eyes for him. Um, you know, maybe he was sort of Marty Feldman like. You don't know how many of you remember Marty Feldman? Played Igor and Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Whatever happened to your happy acceptance of me as a messenger of the gospel, the good news of Christ, you so love the truth of the gospel that you overlook my physical problems. In fact, I bear witness that if it would have been possible, if it would have not been so messy and would have actually been helpful, you would have donated your eyes to me. Those were the good old days, man, when you were willing to do that. And then in verse 16, Paul says, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now your attitude is, no more eyeballs for you, buddy. (laughs) Keep after us with the truth. Whereas you enthusiastically receive the truth and me, Paul, as the messenger of the truth of the gospel of Christ, now it seems I have become your enemy by telling you the truth of the gospel. Have you experienced that? A relationship that starts out uh, gospel-centered, it's, you know, you either you're introducing someone to Christ or you have a relationship that's based upon Christ. And then uh, something changes and the other person is either turned from the gospel or getting cool toward the gospel and, and for some false version of Jesus, turning away from him completely. Those are very hurtful if you've ever, ever experienced that. 
And the other question I have for us is, have you been tempted either to quit loving or to quit truthing? Literally, that's what Paul says. He uses a word that is a verb for truth, truthing. Have I become your enemy by truthing you? So Paul loves them deeply. He feels the pain deeply for them of their straying from him, but straying from the gospel because they're straying from him. And he says, uh, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so we can learn from Paul that we should keep loving and keep telling the truth. If we really love people, we will keep telling the truth. And then verses 17 and 18, Paul says, These gospel-distorting teachers make much of you, but for no good purpose. In other words, these gospel-distorting teachers zealously sought, literally they courted, um, they courted the Galatians. Of itself, that was okay. Paul said it's, it, they, it can be good to seek a, a close relationship with somebody, but the problem was that they did it for no good purpose. They wanted to shut out the Galatians from Paul so that the Galatians would zealously seek them, that is, the false teachers. So was Paul just being jealous? Actually, yes, he was being jealous. We use that word uh, always in a negative context, but it has a good sense as well, a godly jealousy, protective of people who are facing spiritual peril. So Paul was their father in the gospel. He loved them and was rightly protective over them as a Christian parent would be of their child being drawn into a cult, he knew they were being drawn into a false gospel that was leading to their spiritual ruin. The false teachers were trying to cut them off from Paul so they could bring them under the influence so they would buy into their false gospel. Gospel-centered relationships are not selfishly controlling or manipulative, but they help each other live in freedom in Christ. Again, Gospel-centered relationships are like being fellow freedom fighters. We help one another to keep laying hold of the freedom we have in Christ and not give in to uh, bondage to worldly religion or worldly ways. And so Paul says in verse 18, it's good to zealously pursue relationships when it's for a good purpose, but be genuine with me. Don't act as if our relationship is still strong when I'm with you. Only don't be fickle. And we've experienced this, haven't we? We know a relationship... Um, is compromised or jeopardized with someone. When we're with them, they act as if everything's okay and good, but behind our backs, we find out it's not so good. So Paul experienced that with them. It's obvious you know, that they act loyal to our adversary when, they're, when they are with them, and this doesn't just happen in middle school. So Paul felt the betrayal, felt the um, manipulation of someone trying to break their relationship. Our concern for others must be rooted and grounded in the gospel. Are we helping, and the question for us is, are we helping others grow and know the gospel, grow in and know the gospel? How are their other relationships impacting them in the gospel? If this seems weird to think this way, then we need to learn from the Apostle Paul. He was all about helping one another grow in knowing and following Christ in the gospel. And finally, in verses 19 and 20, He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth. Paul's love for them was so deeply gospel-centered that he compared his pains to recover from their defection from the gospel to birth pains. Birth pains he had already been through when he first preached the gospel, and they received Christ. And he describes what he is suffering as labor pains, for that is Christ, that Christ is formed in them. Uh, This image 
This word picture applies to the individuals, whether some never had truly known Christ in the first place, never had Christ dwelling in them in the first place, or whether their grasp on the truth of the gospel had shrunk back, they had shrunk back to spiritual babyhood. Like he said in verse 11, I fear I've labored over you in vain. But the difference between being known by God and not knowing God at all is Christ indwelling us. Paul said back in in, uh, verse 20 of chapter 2, Christ dwells in me. Or in another passage, he said, Christ in you is hope of glory. That is what makes us a Christian. Christ birthed in us, Christ indwelling us, that is how we receive his saving grace. It's not just from a distance. Christ in up close and personal indwelling us. And Paul would ask us today, do you have Christ in you? It's a yes or no question. I either have Christ in my life or I don't. And I can only freely receive it by receiving his grace, receiving him through grace alone, through faith alone, his death and resurrection for me. I put my trust wholly in him. I receive him. That is the way that Christ will come into my life. And he eagerly, freely does it. So let's pray uh, that Christ would be formed in us wherever we're at in relationship to him. Father, we thank you that the gospel frees us from worldly bondage, bondage to false gods of all sort, whether the cleaned up gods of our of our nicer culture or paganism, whatever, that you save us from slavery to idols. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us this community of others who are freedom fighters along with us to pursue freedom in Christ together. Thank you that the gospel does free us from sin and death and gives us life in Christ. Father, I pray that you would cause that we would so encourage one another for Christ to be formed in, in each other. It's about all about being free in him, all about growing in the gospel, and all about receiving Christ to begin with. So I pray, Father, that no one will leave here today without knowing that they have Christ in them, the hope of glory, Christ received into their lives. We thank you, Father, that we, in our Spiritual deadness, the bad news is we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot grab onto righteousness ourselves. But Jesus gives us that freely, his righteousness, his life. That is the good news. That's the gospel that sets us free. Thank you. In Christ's name.